Well, hi, everybody. We are smack in the middle of the holidays, but uh, we could not let the weekend pass without talking about uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody, the new Whitney Houston biopic, which Christy and Katie will be getting into. But first, uh, Christy and I will be answering your questions in another Ask Us Anything segment. Ask us anything. It has been a while since we have done one of these. Um, it's been several months and the questions have been piling up. Urgent <laughs> questions that you're just seething with <laughs> desire over. to know. Um, so we grabbed a bunch of them. Thank you guys so much for, for putting in your questions. We love hearing from you. Um, that was really fun. All right. So we're going to begin with Camille Montano. What would you guys say is the hardest part about your jobs that most people don't realize? I love looking at different careers and they're totally in their totality. I need more of my glasses for this. So it would be nice to get a bigger picture of being a film critic. I would say for me, the hardest thing is the two or two and a half star review, right? Mm. Like it's really easy to have it flow out of you when you love something or you hate something. But it's those ones where like, oh, it's got some merit or oh, I didn't hate it or it's got its moments. Like those for me are, are hard to to muster the, I don't know, to be articulate about those. Yeah, that I agree. But I also have a hard time with the movies I really, really love because you really want to do them justice and yeah. you want to share what exactly made you so enthusiastic in a way that will hopefully get other people to see it. And so I feel a lot of pressure with that. All of which to say, by the way, just to, to be clear – we are very uh, aware and grateful of the fact that we have like a really cool job that, that people want to have. Uh, you know, I, I always like to say, I'm not a, a janitor in a slaughterhouse. You know, a lot of people yes. have much harder jobs than I do. Uh, I would say the other tricky part is uh, covering a festival and having to just like jam them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where like you'll go to an 8 a.m. press screening and then immediately have to sit down and start writing up a thing and getting getting it out into the into the ether and like doing that two or three times a day yeah. can be kind of exhausting. And, 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 you know, you really, you know, you want to get it right. Then you don't have the time to sort of like sit on it and stew on it and reread it and that kind of thing the way you normally would. So that can be tricky too. There are so many films that you really want to marinate over. Like, mm. you know, we've recently reviewed Bardo. Right. It'd be hard to like jam out of Venice and go write a thousand words on Bardo. Exactly. Yeah. You like know? I remember when when Tree of Life premiered at Cannes, yeah. I just thought, oh, I would not want to have to just like out an opinion about that one. Yeah, for sure. That's a good question. Thank you. Kay the Replicant asks, seems like Matt and Ben are not coming back permanently. Have you ever thought about adding another person? You've had some great guest reviewers. I think would be perfect fits. I can't really see us at this point in time adding somebody permanently. I've loved having friends step in, and that's been a lot of fun. I like the the, d- the different kind of energy that that can bring. Yeah. Um. But I I don't know. I don't. I won't speak for you. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it's such a tricky thing, and I think it, it's sort of hard to ask somebody to commit to the amount of time that we put into this. So yeah, I'm with you. I love our sort of rotating, um, you know, bullpen of, of guest critics who come in and, 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 and offer insights. And yeah, you're right. They, they, they add a little, they put their own zazz on the episodes mm-hmm. they're doing. But um, yeah, I think at this point it's kind of, it's our baby. Indeed. Uh, Zach Maynard asks, which of the following viewing experiences do you prefer and why film premiere, film festival, critic screening, screener at home. I think it totally depends on what the movie is. Mm. 
It totally depends on what we're about to watch. Uh, for the most part, I don't love premieres, and I don't think you do either. No. <laughs> they never start on time. You often don't get to pick where you're going to sit. And you are surrounded by cast and crew who mm. are very inclined to be very enthusiastic about every single thing. Yeah. Uh, and that's always kind of a weird dynamic to be in. But then the flip side of that is sometimes there's like something cool afterward or like the whole experience. Like I know you have been to some of the Star Wars ones where they'll shut down <laughs> all of Hollywood Boulevard right. and it's just an extravaganza. So it's kind of cool to be in the middle of that. Like when Bob's Burgers premiered, I brought Nick with me and that was kind of fun. It was at the Al Capitan. They had like little nice. mini burgers. Like he loves that. He loves that show. So that was kind of fun to bring him. But for the most part um, – and a film festival too, like that can be kind of cool to be in the crowd that's seeing something for the first time. Sure. But again, that's also sort of an unreliable energy because let's say you're at South by Southwest in Austin and you're right. in that giant theater, the Paramount, and right. you're playing a Judd Apatow movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, th that's definitely an audience that is primed. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I've certainly been to festivals. Like, you know, when we talked about Violent Night, I saw that at Beyond Fest and that was mm -hmm. very much an audience that was that was primed and pumped to be there. So yeah, it's, it's, it can throw you off a little. I do like doing festival Q and A's having been a festival programmer for a long mm -hmm. time that, that those I, I, I find uh, interesting. I mean, all things being equal, I would probably say a critic screening just yeah. because there's a minimum of sort of pomp and, you know, uh, you don't have to deal with like, I, I, I don't mind going to a screening where they've also opened it to the public, but I resent it when they do it, thinking that somehow we're not going to really get like a comedy or a horror movie if we don't see it without like regular folks having responses because mm. we're all dead inside, you know. <laughs> Through sheer osmosis, we're going to enjoy this more. <laughs> exactly. Um, I like one of critic screenings too because so much of what we do is so solitary, especially in the last two and a half years. So to see mm. our friends is like going to the office. Absolutely. Yes. That's that been part nice. is nice too. Um, okay. Hot sauce, water gun. That's a fun name. For fun <laughs> – if you could throw a Snickers bar at any filmmaker, alive or dead, who would it be? I mean, obviously, Juve <laughs> <Yves> Bull. <laughs> well, am I, are they catching it or am I like heaving it at their head? That's kind of the difference. That's a really good question, right? Some of them get better reflexes. Spielberg, cat-like reflexes. <laughs> either way, I'll say Adam Sandler. <laughs> if, he wants to, if he wants to have a Snickers, great. If it, if it also strikes him, uh, you know, I won't cry. He's cranky and he needs a little blood sugar boost. Yes, Adam he's Sandler. angry. But then serious, for serious, is there a film that changed your life? Is there a film that changed my life? I don't, I don't think that's so hard. There are yeah. ones that are so formative to me from my childhood, like The Wizard of Oz, like The Sound of Music that I saw that like planted my early love of film in Sure. Me. What about you? Yeah, it's, it's hard to sort of nail it down to one. Like I always talk about the first movie I remember seeing in the theater was, you know, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a movie that's really stayed with me. Like a movie that I think about, I, I, I'll tell you, I'll, this is maybe not quite what the question was, but. I do remember feeling seen in a way the first time I saw a, a, a queer 80s indie movie called Parting Glances. Mm. Um, and I had just started my first relationship with someone. Oh. And there were moments in that movie that I was like, oh, oh, like they, they really kind of spoke to me in a way of somebody who was finally like, you know, being out of the closet, being involved with somebody else um, that, that felt very like that I was able to recognize as like these, these things that I was encountering in my own life. And that's why I bet things like love Simon and love Victor are probably very helpful. 
for young queer kids who don't know what they're feeling and like finally have someone on screen reflecting what they're doing. Absolutely. Because I think so we we all kind of grow up seeing things in the movies and thinking of them as they're they're either aspirational or they're supposed to be aspirational and it gives you something of a blueprint to imagine what that situation with you would look like, you know. Yeah. But a couple that can kind of go together, Kay Rosewall and Will Jones both ask what we would put on a hypothetical sight and sound ballot. And mm. then Kay Rosewall also asks him we possibly review Jean Dielman on a future show. And like, for sure, I've never seen it. So I think we should. Oh, it's a good yeah. Idea. No, I'd love to. In the meantime, if you want to go back, there was a, a, a podcast I was doing with Daniel Thompson from Deck the Hallmark called A Film and a Movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did two Jean Dielman episodes. Uh, filmmaker Wayne Wang came on and he wanted to talk about Jean Dielman in the context of a new film that he made whose title just flew out of my head as soon as I started the sentence. And then we also did one where we paired it with that movie, The Assistant, because they have a very similar aesthetic as far as like one day in a woman's life and the sort of the, the tedium of the tasks that are, that are put before her. Oh, where um, Julia Garner is like the sort of a, a Weinstein kind of. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a very Jean Dillman vibe to it. So it, the, it, it was a good pairing. Uh, what would I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't give you all 10, but like, I mean, Rules of the Game would be on my list for sure. Citizen Kane would be on my list. Singing in the Rain. Um, probably an Almodovar film, either Women on the Verge or All About My Mother. You know, um, this, this is where it gets tricky. To it's so hard. It's so hard because how 10. much of it is like, I love this movie and it's personal? And sure. how much of it is it like, this matters culturally and you got to put it in that time capsule for all of eternity. Yeah. I mean, I would try and do movies that are both, you know, where yeah. like, like the, the thing I always say about Citizen Kane, I think people think it's, it's this because it, it's been, it's become such a like face on Mount Rushmore that mm-hmm. people think it's this thing. And I'm like, but it's fun. It is, it is a classic <laughs> and it's an important film, you know, in the, in the canon of cinema, but it's entertaining and it's breezy and it's funny. And it's got a lot of like, it zips along really well. So I, I hope people don't think it was being too overwhelming, but yeah. So my list would, I would try and have movies that both mean something to me personally and and that I get pleasure in watching, yeah. but that also sort of, you know, fill this void of, or not void, but sort of, you know, represent art and, and you know, the, 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 the medium of cinema, you know. I mean, it's hard to make this list without sounding totally basic, right? Like <laughs> Susan Kane and Casablanca. And- yeah. Vertigo, like, you know, movies that matter, although it's not my favorite Hitchcock, but it's no, it's not even my top 10 Hitchcock. Yeah. Strangers (laughs) on a Train is my favorite. Yeah. Notorious. Um, so like for me, it's like the Wizard of Oz and the Sound of Music again, but also like No Country for Old Men and maybe Do the Right Thing. Like, I, I don't know the answer to this question. Like, so much of me wants to just go put the Big Lebowski in there. Paddington, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's a really personal thing, right? And then there's the whole like, fear of comparison like well what did they put on their list like, what, what did the fancy critics put on their don't, list don't peek at your neighbors you can't you can't i don't know i don't really know i don't know and i i, I like that jean dealman is now 
you know, the best film ever because it's just different. It's just a totally different kind of vibe and it reflects an evolution in who all is picking. Yeah, and- I, I don't think it means any more or less that Jean Dielman is the, the greatest film ever made according to this poll than it did when Bicycle Thieves or Citizen Kane or Vertigo topped mm-hmm. it. Like it's, it, it, it's a, a collection of certain people's opinions. But uh, I'm glad that people are talking about Jean Dielman and maybe watching Jean Dielman for the first time because it is a great movie and it's it is both important and I think you know fascinating and and um you know I I that was one of those movies that I held out to watch on the big screen and I got to do that years ago at the at the Bing Theater which no longer exists at, yeah. at LACMA uh, but you know if if you can turn your phone off and, and, you know, close the curtains and really devote yourself to paying attention to it on the Criterion channel. It's a great movie. Yes. Uh, have you ever walked out of a movie? Asks David Palmer. If so, what movie and why? I remember I walked out of 51st Dates, speaking of Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> that movie why? just, that movie just got in my nerves and it was, it, it was, I just found it so irritating and because of the structure, I was like, oh God, we have to go through this like 45 more times. I'm, I can't, I'm out <laughs> and I wasn't reviewing it. So it didn't matter. So I walked out of that one. Um, I've definitely turned off a lot of movies like that I was watching for festival programming where you get like 20, 25 yeah. minutes in. You're like this, no matter how great this yeah. movie might become, it can't overcome what I've already had to sit through. It's not going to uh, get any better. Yeah. I no. walked out of the first saw Mm. Um, and I've never seen a saw since. Yeah. Uh, I was living in New York and there's a moment where like, there's like a mom and a kid and there's a gun to their heads and they're like trembling and sobbing and it just felt so like wallowing in their misery in a way yeah. that just like struck me wrong. And I wasn't even a parent then. I didn't even want to have a kid at this point in my life. But it just like – it really – bothered me in a way that I'm like, I don't want to sit through any more of this. And I've never seen a saw since. So, so that was I the last saw you good. saw. Like, yeah, I have not seen a saw. Um, do you guys prefer reviewing movies in the podcast or in written form on the rap and rogerebert.com? Um, also a really random question. I wanted to ask as sites like Letterboxd where everyone can be a movie reviewer grow more and more popular, film critics seem to be less significant to the public eye. Oh, do we now? <laughs> do you guys feel a difference before and after those websites are as popular? This is from someone named Dunka Kino. Um, Dunka Chino. Well, no, it's D-U-N-K-A-K-I-N-O. Oh, okay. Dunka Kino then. <laughs> there you go. Don't question me. All right. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, so the- I do like the fact that I can do both and I sure. feel like each of them helps the other. I like the fact that I've been a writer my entire life and so that has given me like a structure and, and a cohesion, hopefully, yeah. you know, that it flows, that it's fluid and it makes sense and all that. Um, but I also like that I can just talk and I feel like they each help each other. Like being able to do it in a podcast or on radio requires some brevity and like being able to get to the point and be succinct and yeah. use your words efficiently. And that translates over to writing. Yeah, I, I agree. Writing sort of lets you kind of collect your thoughts together. But at the same time, it's all you. Whereas like in this format, we're able to kind of go back and forth and exchange ideas and, you know, see where we, you know, or with any of the podcasts that I do. So, yeah, I, I, I think they each have their appeal. Um, as for Letterboxd, I, I would argue that the Internet in general has kind of dug into uh, the status of film critics in that we used to be the only ones that you would see in any kind of mass medium whether it was on TV or in newspapers or in magazines or whatever, sort of like, you know, talking about films. But now 
ever, as long as there's been an internet, whether it was, you know, uh, rec arts, you know, boards or, you know, letterboxed or live journal or Twitter or whatever, like, I think anybody can sort of put forth their ideas about things and, and, you know, reach, uh, and have some public reach to that. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely been a, a, I guess, a democratization of the process. But, you know, I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, people who are, uh, who know what they're talking about. <laughs> and, and, you know, who like who've seen a lot of movies. I mean, like everybody has, you know, the feeling that they come away with from a movie and then they their opinion is valid in that sense. But I think the opinions of people who have seen a lot of movies, who have studied how film works, uh, you know, I think they they bring more to the table than the casual observer who maybe sees two or three movies a year. Um, and so it's good that everybody can, you know, participate in the process. And you can find who you think works best for you. Absolutely. There you have choices. You know, or like if, if, if you always disagree with me, great. Keep watching. <laughs> That's part of the fun. I always say disagreeing is part of the fun. Um, Nom Finello. Okay, I'll get this right. Nom Finello Malloy. Does RRR have a chance to get nominated for Best Picture or will it get snubbed? I kind of don't see it happening. That's a wonderful idea. It's very exciting. I can see it maybe in like Best Original Song, mm-hmm. but I I don't know. I think that's a nice idea. I mean, what not for think? lack of trying. They are yeah. really like I get I get emails all the time about yep. screenings in Los Angeles and events with the director and you know like they're really putting on a full-throated campaign yeah. for the movie. And uh, our friend Carlos Aguilar recently tweeted about going to some Academy event and talking to older Academy members and being surprised at how much enthusiasm there was among them for RRR. That's great. So like that it's actually playing to like, you know, viewers in their 60s and 70s, you know, who are members of the Academy. So you never know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd like to be wrong on this. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, what is a... Good, so bad it's good. Christmas movie to watch. Asks, I want to get this right. Pranav Updaye. Hmm. Uh, well, you know, uh, I will say this is a good area for the sort of mystery science theater, Riff Tracks, cinematic Titanic universe. So, like, they all of them have done versions of uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, and none of them repeated jokes. Like, that's how fertile that film is for for mockery. A rich text. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, you know, the Mystery Science Theater uh, of the Mexican Santa Claus is a great episode, although I have over the years kind of come to love the Mexican Santa Claus for all of its craziness. Uh, MST also did a movie called The Christmas That Almost Wasn't, which is this really batty 60s kids movie. And in fact, this Friday they're premiering. Oh, wait, when is this airing again? <laughs> this comes out on the 23rd. Okay, uh, then yes, uh, uh, you can now see on the Gizmoplex, because it, it already premiered, uh, uh, The Christmas Dragon, um, which features like all three MST hosts. So those are all fun. Um, beyond that, it's kind of a matter of taste. You know, like uh, I, I think the uh, any movie that has Thomas Kincaid's name in the title kind of has some chuckles w- with it, but maybe that's not your speed of, of thing. And like the I've painter seen some, of light guy. 
the painter of light guy. Yes. There were a <laughs> couple of movies that were sort of branded with him. Uh, and there are some that are just like so bad. They're bad. Like that terrible nutcracker with, uh, with El Fanning oh. and, you know, Nathan Lane as Albert Einstein, but I oh, wouldn't that recommend hideous. that to anyone. No, that, that was terrible. <laughs> that, that was not good. Well, that's a good one to leave you on then as we approach Christmas here. Yeah. Thank you guys all so much for hanging out with us all year long. Enjoy the holidays. We'll do another one of these really soon, beginning yeah. of 2023 for sure. Hey there, we are talking about the Whitney Houston movie, I Want to Dance with Somebody, which I keep wanting to call I'm Your Baby Tonight. It definitely is that formula where they like take a title of a song and they make it the movie title. Um, the great Katie Walsh is here with me. We're here to help you uh, enter that Christmas weekend on a high note, no pun intended, as we talk about this Whitney Houston movie, and we're going to have a really big difference of opinion on this one, I think. <laughs> Katie, will you describe the very complicated plot of this movie? Hello. Hi. Yes, Hi. I'm excited to talk to you Thank about you. Uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Uh, the plot is that it's the sad, tragic life of, of Whitney Houston. It starts around teenagerhood, so at least we're not starting as a kid, but it goes all the way to um, the end of her life. Um, sadly at the age of 49, but, um, it's pretty much just playing the hits. It's Literally. like, <laughs> here's, you know, this Whitney Houston song. Do you know this Whitney Houston song? Here's the whole version of it. And I want two and a half hours of my life back Oh no, this movie is not good. So here's the thing in, in a post walk hard world. Yeah. How do we do the music biopic? I love Walk Hard. And I, I did it from the very beginning. I know there's been the whole like Walk Hard renaissance in the last yeah. decade. I loved it from the second I saw it because it's so dead on in, you know, like pointing out all the tropes and the stereotypes of the music biopic. And so like this does all that. Like maybe it's about expectations because I was like dreading this. I was mm. like, this is going to suck. It's going to be so superficial and so empty. And uh, what Casey Lemons has done has really surprised me quite a bit as far as, yes, it is chronological. She's not deviating from the structure that we're very familiar with, but it feels like a really like sub substantive old-fashioned kind of version of this movie. And it feels glossy and Naomi Aki is not singing the songs and like nobody should try no one should try to be Whitney Houston. They just can't, yeah. you know? So I think they're wise to not try to have somebody recreate that voice. Right. But, um, it's Whitney's voice. It's, it's all it's all lip sync to Whitney's voice. Exactly. Um, but I was sort of surprised by the, the, the subtext she finds by placing certain songs in unexpected situations, right? Like as far as this being about her never being able to be who she wanted to be. Right. Right. And her not being able to be with Robin, her true love. Yeah. And so there are songs at certain moments that have unexpected meaning based on where she places them. And I found that surprising. But it sounds like you hated this and you don't agree at all. <laughs> um, well, it's okay. I think that you are actually hitting on probably what is a, a strength of the film, which okay. is the way that they tie the types of songs that she's singing towards what's going on in her personal life. Um, which I'm like, that's very generous of you, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I find this project ghoulish, to be completely honest. Yeah. I, um, 
I could not stop thinking about who was producing this film. And who's producing this film is Clive Davis, mm-hmm. who's played by Stanley Tucci as a beautiful angel, father figure, collaborator, creative force, the only person who tries to have an intervention with Whitney. And Pat Houston, who is, I believe, her sister-in-law, who um, I think is sort of like the executor of, I don't know if it's, you would say the executor of the state. I would have to look into exactly what Pat Houston's role is, but um, she does, there's an actress who plays her in a very small bit part, which I think is kind of funny. Um, Uh And, you know, she becomes sort of like Whitney's business manager. And I just, if you've seen the Whitney Houston documentary, Mm -hmm. like she has this astonishingly tragic life. And I think that when you look at the the details of what this biopic includes, like it very openly includes the the relationship with Robin, who was her best friend. Um, there's no skirting it. It's like these two are a couple. They kiss. They're flirting. They're basically living together in the beginning of the film. Robin kind of drops out about halfway through. But then like if you see – like there's other details about her life that are revealed in the Whitney Houston doc – um, I believe it's just called Whitney. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's also some certain things about her drug use and and the role that her brothers played in, on tour and stuff if they were, you know, getting drugs for her. And I think because Pat Houston is related to one of her brothers like or is married to one of her brothers, like, there's just certain things that are, like, included and then not included. And I found it very strategic. Mm-hmm. And then as the film is going on and they're playing all of these songs, you know, the whole song, I'm like – what is the point of this documentary or this this biopic? Like, is it just to like get the like refresh the Whitney Houston catalog? And then mm. who stands to profit from it? So all I could start, yeah. all I could think about was like Clive Davis is gonna make money off of this. And he's presented in a very warm light. You know, Pat Houston could t- potentially make money on this. I have not looked into who stands to gain. I was just mm. looking at who is behind this. And I feel like Casey Lemons, who is a great, great director, yes. was probably hamstrung by the producers. And I just, I, I feel like, I just wish there had been more life. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Elvis. And as I know mm-hmm. Elvis is not for everyone. But just seeing the way Boz Lerman remixes and recontextualize and cuts so quickly all of these really well-known songs like into the... Um, you know, development of Elvis um, and his biography as we're seeing it, like, and just re, re you know, remixes it, chops and screws it. I just felt like watching with the um, I Want to Dance with Somebody was so like, and then this song, yeah, and then this song, and then this song. It was like, okay, now she does the I Want to Dance with Somebody video, now she does the this video, and it's just it felt so boring. I I know I'm rambling, so I no, no, let no. you no, I respond. <laughs> no, and I usually I usually agree with you that I would yeah. much rather have someone like Baz Luhrmann like shaking you up and approaching it from a totally different perspective and making you rethink somebody's life and artistry. Um, I like biopics usually that like will take a a pivotal moment in somebody's life, like not try to do cradle to grave right. biopic. I like. A different approach. This is not that. This is pretty traditional. This, you know, it's not cradle to it's cradle to grave. It's teenagerhood to to grave. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a lot of care that goes into the performances into recreating those in a 
perfect way down to the smallest details in terms of Naomi Aki's performance, like whatever hand gesture she's using, whatever energy she brings to it, um, the costume design, the lighting, and recreating stuff like the 1994 American Music Award medley she did, or the Super Bowl when she sang the national anthem, and what a hugely galvanizing moment that was in our nation. So I think there was so much care that went into getting all those things right, that I guess to answer your question as to what is the point of this and who stands to benefit, I mean, it's a surefire thing the way that Rocket Man is or Bohemian Rhapsody is. This is the writer of Bohemian Rhapsody. I think it is intended to make us reappreciate all over again a phenomenal artist and a titan in you know music history and, and pop culture in America. Um, and probably for awards too. Although what's so weird is that there's no awards campaign for well, this movie at all. Because it's not good. <laughs> But she's good. But what has it ever stopped any studio from like putting forward an awards campaign even when a movie's not good? I I mean, I do think Naomi Aki gives a good performance. I just feel like Whitney Houston, her beauty and her talent was otherworldly. Mm-hmm. And like Naomi Aki, I'm sorry, she's she's human. Like mm-hmm. she's not I, – I just I, – no one could come close to Whitney. Um, and she does do a beautiful performance. I mean, she gets all the – eyes and hands and mouth and mm. enunciation right. you know quirks of of Whitney and like I do think that they are like the intent of the film is to pay tribute yeah. to Whitney Houston I don't know that that's what I came away with feeling um about about the film and I I I really struggle also with the fact that they um do a scene right before sh- she dies where they sort of imagine her frame of mind and what she's going through at that moment in time. I just found that really like, I didn't, I didn't, I wish they hadn't done that. I wish they hadn't included that scene. I thought that was really tense. I thought that was really tasteful and well done because I, when, when you see the bathtub, you're like, oh no, please, please, please don't show us, don't show us the bathtub. I, I don't want to see that moment, but to show us the moments possibly leading up to that, but they're so, imagining like what her frame of right. mind was. Like no one knows what her frame of no. mind was before she died. And they're sort of they, – they cast her in this sort of like rueful, regretful, like kind of thinking back on her glory days light. And I just was like – I don't know. It just seemed a little – like it's not – it doesn't show a lot of – I mean it shows her drug addiction. But the funny thing is like it always shows her like holding drugs or drug paraphernalia but never actually – consuming drugs like acquiring them this the sneaky way she acquires them (laughs) yeah like walks right up to the line like it does not deny that she had substance abuse issues but um i just i don't know i just sort of didn't i wish they had just maybe skirted the the beverly hilton of it all the bathtub Mm. of it all a little bit more but they really try to like imagine what she's going through on her last day and i was like I don't know. I, I just, I didn't feel like I came away from it, like knowing something more about Whitney Houston or understanding her in a different way. I really think that the Whitney documentary is like far greater in terms of a film about her, even though it does go to some really dark places. Like when I saw that film, I couldn't stop listening to Whitney Houston music for like weeks on end. Uh, I I don't really feel like I need to listen to any <laughs> Whitney music. I listen to I Have Nothing in the car on the way home. I will admit that because that's like my favorite song. Yeah. I mean, her. it's like her body of work is crazy, uh, amazing, all of those hits. And it is nice to be reminded of maybe some of the deep cuts that you don't remember as well as I Want to Dance with Somebody or I Will Always Love You. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it just really made me question like 
what what are we doing here with this music biopic? And you know, is this really the tribute to Whitney Houston that she deserves? I don't think it is. Oh, it does feel very safe, but I also was very pleased to see how much Robin there is in it because it could have yeah. been very easy to like completely blow that over and like be vague with it. But you see two women in love, and you see that she's so ambitious that she chooses her career over her happiness. Right. So right. I do. I do appreciate that. They didn't. They didn't skirt that entirely. They don't. But then again, I'm. I'm questioning why are we including Robin, but we're not including other details. Why are we including? I don't know. I just couldn't stop thinking about like the strategy behind it all. Yeah. Um. And Ashton Sanders plays Bobby Brown, and he's he fun. actually does an okay job. Yeah, but I just wish he had better agents or something. I'm like, he's such an amazing actor. Yeah. We need him in some better projects. But he. He. You know. I don't know who else could have done Bobby Brown. <laughs> Yeah, and I like Stanley Tucci as Clive Davis. He's like warm and charming, but of course he is because Clive Davis is a producer on this. So of course right. you're going to pick someone awesome like Stanley Tucci to play you. Of course. <laughs> anyway, um, I like this a lot better than you did. I thought this was pretty solid. I'm saying seven. I'm saying two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. And, no, don't be sorry. That's what's so fun about this. This is why I love talking to you because it's, it's more fun to, you know, you definitely brought up things that I hadn't thought about. So I appreciate you for that. So Katie, you're awesome. Thank you. I want to dance with somebody is in theaters starting this Christmas weekend and you have to let us know where you fall on this and what Whitney Houston song you have had in your head since then. So awesome. We're so glad you guys could join us for this. Um, yeah, that uh, pretty much is going to wrap us up for 2022, except for our live conversation about Glass Onion, which is coming up on the 27th. Yes, Tuesday the 27th. We will see you. Come and join us. We'll have a link somewhere in the world for you yes. uh, to come and do a live Glass Onion spoiler talk since it is now at this point on Netflix. Absolutely. So anyway, uh, thank you for being with us all year. We really appreciate it. We hope to see more of you in 2023. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash day. Follow us on the socials at day. Uh, this holiday season and always take care of yourselves and each other. We'll see you next time. For Bye. sure. And we'll have top 10 lists for you next year. So yes. come on back. Thanks. Bye.